From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. National Men's Health Week. It's observed each year leading up to Father's Day. The week is dedicated to reminding men to take steps to improve their health. On today's Mayo Clinic Radio program, we'll learn about some of the most common men's health concerns at each age from a Mayo Clinic expert. But if you develop any symptoms, that's the time to come be seen from a men's health standpoint. So uh, new onset of erectile dysfunction, new onset of change in libido, change in urinary symptoms, all of these can signal something going on in the body and should prompt a workup. Also on the program, the do's and don'ts of nighttime snacking, what to avoid so you can rest easy. And we'll hear about one refugee's journey all the way to medical school. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to men's health, we all know the basics. Eat right, exercise, get enough sleep, avoid tobacco, limit stress, and more importantly, marry the right person. (laughs) (laughs) But other men's health conditions like sexual health and testosterone levels also need to be addressed as men's age. Sure. National Men's Health Week is observed each year leading up to Father's Day, a yearly reminder for men to take steps to be healthier. And here to discuss men's health is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you, Dr. Trost. Thank you. Good to be with you again. So how often should men get a checkup? More than just Father's Day as of Keystone? I think it depends. From a men's health standpoint, um, I think the majority of the visits would be with your primary care physician. So I think you want to keep up your your regular screenings and checking there. But if you develop any symptoms, that's the time to come be seen uh, from a men's health standpoint. So uh, new onset of erectile dysfunction, new onset of change in libido, change in urinary symptoms, all of these can signal something going on in the body and should prompt a workup. But Dr. Trost, you know, we're, we're men. You know, <laughs> nothing goes wrong with us. Uh, everything's good. So wh- when should one start thinking about screening tests, et cetera, and seeing their primary care doctor? I think it depends what age it happens. So if you're 80 and you're having the first time erectile dysfunction, then yeah. you probably don't need to worry about it as much. On the other hand, if you're 40 and you're having consistent and worsening symptoms with erectile function, uh, then that really should prompt a, a workup for it. And and same is true with urinary symptoms. Mild symptoms, that's common and normal as we get older. But any abrupt change or uh, symptoms that are happening at a young age usually indicate something else going on. I love this question. You can tell that it was written by our female producer. Why are men reluctant to see a doctor? Over the years, have you figured this out? Either of you, you can keep, you can chime in on that, Dr. Kakar. Do you know uh, well, what what is the situation for guys? From a sexual function standpoint, there's no question it's embarrassment. Sure. Uh, and, and nobody. And, and it's funny because we'll routinely have a 70 or 80 year old coming in saying two things. One, I can't believe I'm actually having these symptoms. I'll bet I'm the only person. <laughs> and then two, um, am I too old to be worrying about this? And in reality, the desire to maintain that aspect of quality of life is maintained lifelong. Uh, it's actually pretty rare that people will lose that. Uh, but the embarrassment that's associated with it usually lead people to to not want to bring this up to another person. And I think that's in part why, you know, online um, and uh, and other methods of getting these drugs are so popular because they're they're more hidden. Sure. You don't have to talk to someone about it. I've said all along that it's the reason why it's so much harder for men. My theory is that for women, we start having invasive exams at a much younger age. I mean, just when you go in for your cervical checkups, I mean, before you 
have a baby. I mean, just there's so many more options for women to get okay with going to see their doctor before there are for guys. Lots of guys, it's the first time they ever even have this conversation is maybe if they say, let's talk about a vasectomy, mm-hmm. which is a hard conversation. So let's talk about vasectomy. Sure. Nope. Sounds good. Do you, is that a hard conversation for your patients? I'd say the anxiety side is the hardest part for them. And, and we routinely, so we, we typically do about three in an afternoon or so. And at least one out of every five will be a runner. So they'll show up and then they'll just disappear. And they'll, they'll check in. So they'll go all the way to the effort to drive here, park, get up to the floor, check in, and then they leave. I love it. So One out of five? It's about one out of five, I would say. Um, and so we actually incorporated in our uh, vasectomies an anti-anxiety medicine to start off uh, just because everybody's nervous about it. Uh, and I think they're willing to talk about it, but the thought of someone doing something down there while they're awake really makes people nervous. That's what they're nervous about. Mm-hmm. Are, like you're going to slip and there'll be an accident? I mean, what do they think that they'll be the first person that this doesn't turn out well, for I, them? Or? That's exactly what we think, Tracy. <laughs> I, I should be asking you, shouldn't I? Yeah, well, what is it? Well, you know, I, I honestly think they've spent so much of their life trying to protect this area, and suddenly they're completely <laughs> vulnerable to someone down there. Uh, no, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but um, but we definitely see a really high level of anxiety. And we had one that actually prompted us to start the anti-anxiety medicine um, who, as soon as we just did an exam, we just touched the skin, didn't do anything else, and he almost jumped all the way off the table. We thought, okay, we need to do something to <laughs> to, to let this go forward. So, Relatively easy surgery to recover mm-hmm. from, though. Is that correct? Very well, and I guess it, it probably depends on the experience of the you know person sure. doing vasectomies, I imagine. But, but yeah, very minor surgery, very uh, low risk. Uh, recovery is generally generally mild. Now you're always going to have exceptions. You're always going to have people who get a bleed or infection or other things. But uh, but in the far majority, this ends up being a very minimally uh, or a very easily tolerated procedure. Now the part of vasectomy that makes women nervous is the story that oh my husband had a vasectomy 12 years ago and now here I am at 43 pregnant. Mm-hmm. How uh, how do you how long does it take before you say this vasectomy is complete? Nothing is ever 100% in medicine. Oh is boy, the one tough thing. Uh, but it's a one in 2,000 chance if you get cleared. The key thing that some people forget about is you do need to get cleared uh, because after you're done, say about three months after the vasectomy, you want to get a semen analysis to make sure there's no swimming sperm. And as long as your number's really, really low, so less than 100,000 total and they're not swimming, then you're cleared. But on the other hand, if there's any sperm there, it means you're still completely fertile. And until the uh, sperm are essentially washed out of the tubes, you can still achieve a pregnancy. So. So, yeah, it's very uncomfortable speaking about a man's crown jewels like this. <laughs> but but let's say you do have this procedure and everything goes well, but then you have a change of mind and you want to reverse it. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the success rate? Yeah, no, good question. And the success rate in large measure depends on how long it's been since your vasectomy. And it's tough because you'll read online things, 99% success reversal, and, and it, it's just not accurate. Um, if it's been, say, less than two years, your success rates can be as high as, say, 95% or more. But if it's been 10, 20, 30 years, then success rates will drop down on the 50 or 60%. And the other thing is people define success differently. Some will say one sperm, that's successful. But what the couples mean is, what's the chance of having a baby? Mm-hmm. And that relates to a lot of factors, including the partner's age, uh, issues between the two as far as infertility, and that success rate also goes down over time. So We've been talking about men's health with urologist Dr. Landon Trost. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, your own habits may affect your testosterone levels. And we will talk about testosterone when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking men's health with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. All right, Dr. Trost, myth or matter of fact, a man's habits can affect his testosterone levels. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That's a fact, um, although the total extent of that we don't know fully. So uh, I'd say your biggest uh, lifestyle factor is going to be obesity. Sure. And uh, fat mass directly correlates with testosterone. So the more obesity or the more fat mass you have, the lower your testosterone level will be. And if you go on a weight loss diet or bariatric surgery or something along those lines, your testosterone will, will go up incrementally for it. It seems that over the years I've learned something that uh, the belly fat is a bigger deal for men than it is just overall body fat. Is that true? And that might be for some conditions on the um, sexual function side of it and on the testosterone side, it looks to be just a total fat mass um, okay. because fat cells themselves basically eat up oh, testosterone. Right. They convert testosterone into estradiol. So the more fat cells you have, the more it, it goes through the testosterone your body produces. Well, let's talk about testosterone because that's one of the things that you see commercials, you hear commercials saying your testosterone levels mm-hmm. could be the secret to your exciting life, mm-hmm. however they're however they're voiced that way. <laughs> so what is it about testosterone levels that have, uh, inc- I don't know, captured our attention? I think, one, it affects so many people. And with normal aging, we, we all experience similar types of symptoms, fatigue, decreasing energy, decreasing uh, cognition or, or difficulty remembering things. And um, and so I think it hits home when you hear this on the radio that this may be due to something that you didn't cause and it's just a natural change over time. Um, the, the other thing, testosterone is one of those drugs that the FDA grandfathered in. So back in around 1970s or so, uh, any future company making these didn't have to put in the hundreds of millions it normally requires to get a drug oh, approved. Okay. So you have the combination of being able to market directly to patients with a drug that's cheap and easy to synthesize, a population that affects nearly everyone, and a, a therapy that's a natural therapy. So it's a natural hormone that your body produces. You put all that together and you have a booming industry. Uh, now, there, there's always you know truth in fiction uh, with everything. Um, and uh, in, in, in this case, testosterone's you know no, no different. There are things it can help and things that it doesn't help. So what do you tell patients that come to you? I mean, they decide, you know, before I just start taking some medication I get in the mail, what do you tell patients when they come to you and ask about it? I think the first thing is to determine if they really need it. And we look for signs and symptoms uh, predominantly, and that may be something like low libido or erectile dysfunction, maybe osteopenia or thin bones, could be anemia. Um, all of these factors are associated with testosterone. Uh, once we have a set of symptoms that make sense, uh, we check the testosterone and look at the value. And if it's low, and meaning low-low, then they're likely to benefit. But the closer to normal it is, the less likely they'll benefit from treatment. And so in many of those cases, we try to do more education than anything else. So h- how common is it? Because there's many causes of low, of low uh, vitality, for example, hypothyroidism mm-hmm. being in the winter all, all the time. So how common is actually low T to cause you to have fatigue? Yeah, so believe it or not, the ones that you hear most on the radio or on the you know TV, radio, and other things are ones that are least often associated with mm. testosterone. So fatigue, energy, that doesn't correlate very well with really with anything because it's such a broad, sure. generalized type symptom. Other things though, like erectile dysfunction, that tends to correlate a little bit better. And then other conditions such as obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, those tend to correlate even more. Uh, now, testosterone may or may not be able to fix some of those, uh, but they tend to be more associated with it. And when you're treating this, are you is it a cream that you're applying, or is it a pill, or what is it? Yeah, it depends. Depends whatever you like. Uh, there really okay. is any way. You've got intranasal, you have on the gums, you have a patch, you have gels, you have injections, you have pellets. 
they have different, uh, you know, any way that, that you uh, can self-inject or self-treat with testosterone. What you said previously, though, is if you lose some weight, that it can affect your, tes- it can affect your testosterone levels. Are you finding our patients like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to lose 10 pounds, or I'm not going to tr- even try to lose 20 pounds, just give me medication? Mm-hmm. What is the mindset? Well, I think typically by the time they see us, we're definitely not the first one who's mentioned that, you know, uh-huh. losing weight can improve this side effect or symptom. Sure. And, and when you look at, and that's the, the tough thing, whenever you look at lifestyle change type studies, it's very difficult. And we all want to change, you know, various aspects of our lifestyle. And with testosterone, sometimes it's the chicken and the egg. Sometimes if we give someone testosterone, it makes it a lot easier to lose fat mass. And there are several long-term studies now, and one eight years long that basically looks at uh, the fact that men will lose about five pounds per year of fat while they're on testosterone and gain about three to five pounds of muscle uh, every year they're on. Uh, so in some cases, if you have someone who comes in with morbid obesity and, and very difficult to control lifestyle factors, um, testosterone can be an adjunctive therapy or an additive therapy that can help. Mm, we're all going to be on it now. <laughs> there, you, there you heard it. Uh, we uh, During Women's Health Week, we talked about the different ages, the different stages of things that women should. So let's do the same thing if you're up for it, like uh, starting in your 40s and your 50s. What should mm-hmm. men be looking for when in regards to their health? I think the big thing is to know what's normal and what's not normal. Okay. So, uh, normal is worsening urinary symptoms. So increased frequency, getting up at night to urinate, that's pretty normal. And that and gets, starting in the 40s or really until the 50s? 30s. 30s, uh, wow, okay. So you'll start to get progressive symptoms uh, pretty early on that. And that usually isn't anything uh, abnormal. Uh, on the other hand, rapid progression of symptoms, so rapid worsening of urination, urinary tract infections, stones, inability to empty, uh, or blood in the urine, that's never normal. And that you know requires workup. Um, other things that are normal um, in, in regards to testosterone are going to be uh, decreasing um, energy and mood and things like that. Uh, erectile function is the other big one to watch. Um, mine, you know, very, very minor erectile dysfunction in your 40s is, is okay. But when you start getting to the point of needing pills in your 40s, that's abnormal. And mm. that would suggest that you should uh, get an evaluation for it. Uh, we know that erectile dysfunction, for example, is one of the best indicators of your overall health. Uh, if you're getting erectile dysfunction in your 40s, you're much, much more likely, even up to 50 times more likely, to have a, a um, heart attack or something wow. similar wow. in the following 10 years compared to someone who isn't. Now, on the other hand, in your 50s, we expect, again, some degree of erectile dysfunction. By the time you're 60s and if you're needing pills, that's normal. 70s, we expect it. 80s, we're shocked if you don't have it. Hmm. Um, so there's a normal age-based change. Uh, erectile function is probably, again, your best indicator of overall health as far as a barometer for how your body's doing. If you have no erectile dysfunction in your 70s or 80s, you're doing extremely well. Living a charmed Um, life. You really are. Very healthy. On the other hand, if you have it pretty severe in your 40s, again, that means something, you know, bad is going to happen or or is going on. So So some of these rock stars are doing very well in their 70s. (laughs) Or they'd like us to believe. Yes. So uh, we we talked about, you talked about urinary symptoms. Can you talk to us a little bit about prostate, uh, problems with your prostate? When should men start thinking about this, uh, the role of family history, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So this has been a really hot topic. Sure. Um, and uh, you can read almost something new on this. It feels like every couple months in the in the media with it. Um, the current recommendations from the American Urologic Association, which is probably the most specialty board type mm-hmm. area for this, says that you should undergo routine PSA screening. So it's a blood test that mm-hmm. you get um, starting around age 55 up until about age 69. Okay. Um, so that's probably the most important thing on the prostate side of it. 
But um, as men get older, I usually say it's the opposite. For women, when they get older, they tend to leak more. As men mm-hmm. get older, they tend to not to be able to urinate uh, as well. And uh, the symptoms that most often relate to the prostate are going to be urinary symptoms. So frequency or feeling like you need to go more often, uh, urgency, feeling like you have to run to the bathroom, uh, burning when you urinate, those are all pretty normal. Um, the key on that is when the symptoms bother you enough that you're willing to start on a medicine, that's really the time that we look at treating it. Uh, most of these are just symptom-based. So if the, if the urinary symptoms bother you, great, come in. We'll you know treat it with, with medicines. If it's not enough, then we do surgery to, to try to open things up again. I just asked that question because, as you rightly alluded to, in the media there's been a lot of interest in patients being screened at a younger age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's left a lot of us confused. I mean, I was confused myself. So, so how should we sort of interpret that information? Mm-hmm. So and it depends on your, your risk factors with okay. it. So. Uh, strong, strong family history, it can be much, much younger. Um, whereas, uh, and, and certain risk factors, African Americans, for example, are more likely uh, to get prostate cancer and hence they're screened at younger ages. So really this is one that, that you and your doctor have to sit down and decide, is it worth the risks and benefits of screening? The, the downsides of screening is you may find something and it may mm-hmm. not be something that's that important and, and then you're going to worry about it nonstop, you're going to get repeat biopsies, you're going to undergo surgery or radiation or all the above and um, and before you start down that pathway, you have to decide, is it right for me to be screened? Uh, now, no question, screening, that you screen enough, you're going to you know, cure more people. But every time you give a, a treatment, you're going to have side effects with it. And it's, it's a tough balance. Uh, in conclusion, what types of routine tests should men start planning for in these next few weeks now that we've brought this to their attention? What should they be um, calling their doctor to, to schedule? Yeah, I think if uh, if you're being seen for something like uh, erectile dysfunction, we jump, we want to do a general cardiovascular screen. So we're going to check uh, fasting glucose for, to look for diabetes. We're going to check lipid values to look for hyperlipidemia. We're going to check blood pressure. We're going to check testosterone. So that's a pretty routine panel for things. Uh, on the other hand, if you're coming in with something like decreased libido, we're going to lean much more heavily towards the um, psychological aspects of things. So we'll check a few blood tests. But for the most part, that's going to be looking at lifestyle changes and um, and depression and, and uh, issues with the relationship and so on. We've been talking about Men's Health Week with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Trost. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, from refugee to MD, we'll hear one man's journey to medical school. And later on the program, the do's and don'ts of eating before bedtime. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. What woman doesn't want thick, luxurious hair? The reality is... More than half of women will have hair loss by the time they reach the age of 70. Dr. Lisa Draghi says several things can cause thinning hair, including pregnancy, menopause, medical problems, certain medications, your genetics, and even stress. The most common causes of hair loss in women would be female pattern hair loss, and that's a type of genetic and hormonal hair loss. What can you do about it? Well, Dr. Draghi says that depends on why you're losing your hair. But for the most common form of hair loss, over-the-counter medications such as minoxidil works for about two-thirds of the women who use it. The tough thing about hair loss is it 
takes a while for anything to really have a, a effect. From six months to a year, there are also prescription medications that target hormones in your scalp, but no treatment is perfect. Dr. Draghi says research into managing female pattern hair loss is ongoing. And now let's talk about swimmer's ear. It happens a lot in spring and summer. Swimmer's ear is an infection in the outer ear canal, which runs from your eardrum to the outside of your head. It's often brought on by water that stays in your ear after swimming, creating a moist environment that aids bacterial growth. So here are some tips. Putting fingers, cotton swabs, or other objects in your ear also can lead to swimmer's ear by damaging the thin layer of skin lining your ear canal. So here are some tips to help prevent and treat it. Keep your ears dry. Dry your ears thoroughly after exposure to moisture from swimming or bathing. Dry only your outer ear. Protect your ears from irritants. Put cotton balls in your ears while applying products such as hairsprays and hair dyes. And if you've recently had an ear infection or ear surgery, talk to your doctor before you go swimming. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, did you ever crave a little something to eat before calling it a day? Maybe a bowl of ice cream as a bedtime snack? Pretty much every day. Yep, I'm guilty too. <laughs> well, maybe you're one of those, uh, on the other hand, who eats dinner fashionably late. A big meal before crawling into the big white biscuit. You know, you may be... <laughs> With the bed, yeah. Okay. You, you may be aware of the of the that there are some calories you're taking in by doing that, but you may not realize that what you eat at night might be affecting how well you sleep. Here to discuss the do's and don'ts of nighttime snacking is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Joseph Murray. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Murray. It's great to see you always. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Always good to have you on the program. You know, a lot of us are in the fridge uh, pretty close to bedtime, nighttime snack. Good idea or a bad idea? Uh, generally a bad idea. <laughs> Sleeping and eating are not compatible. Um, when we eat, our body, our digestive system has to work on that food. And typically it doesn't work on that food so well when we're asleep. So you don't like it from a gastroenterologist's mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah, our nutritionist friends, when uh, Kate Zaratsky is here, she doesn't like it because it's bad for just additional calories that you don't need. You don't need them. Um, and I think from the digestive point of view, you're filling your stomach. Your stomach then has to produce lots of acid in response. And then you lay down and you've got this bag of acid and food sitting there, it, there's now not even gravity helping keeping it down. So so the first thing I think about is reflux. So you're going to start bringing that stuff back up usually an hour after you go to sleep. The second part is your digestion is working like bilio to try and start digesting the food. It's supposed to be resting. And our body, our digestive system, as soon as we go to sleep, it should go into housekeeping mode or house cleaning mode. And many years ago, Charlie Code here at the Mayo Clinic described housekeeping contractions or cleaning contractions moving through the small intestine at night. They sweep down the small intestine, moving all of the whatever debris or anything is left behind, moving it down to the colon where it belongs. And if you've just been eating, you totally interfere with that, that process. Oh, I guess it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, I'm sitting here (laughs) thinking... Cut that out. Hmm. If you do need a snack, are there any things that you might say are better than others? 
Well, first I would say liquid is better than solid. And by liquid, well, ice cream turns to liquid. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, a lot of milk products turn to solid when they hit the stomach okay. and they curd. Right. So they're not. They may yeah. look like liquid going down, but they don't may not remain as a liquid. Nice try, Shive. Yeah. <laughs> and now some liquids are not a good idea. So alcohol, for example, a lot of people like a nightcap. Well, what does that do? It makes you a little drowsy, so you might get to sleep a little easier, but you don't stay asleep. And on top of that, it also weakens that very important lower esophageal sphincter, which is the valve that stops acid from coming back up from your oh, stomach. So there's so two knocks on alcohol. Two knocks on the alcohol, I'm afraid. What so, else shouldn't we eat? If, if alcohol oh. is one that we shouldn't eat, what shouldn't we eat? So for, for some people, high-fat foods, for example, also tend to sit in the stomach much longer than lower-fat foods, and because the fat puts on what's called the brakes on the system, it takes longer to digest. So that's one thing that I tell people, you okay. know, whatever you do, don't do that. So that bowl of ice cream, mm-hmm. not a good idea. Mm-hmm. French fries, mm-hmm. probably. Oh, no, no. there they're totally out. A late night cheeseburger snack run, you know, not a good idea. Okay, so alcohol, fatty foods, what else? Um, well, I think some people have a problem with chocolate. Uh, well, some of us have a problem. I don't have with, a problem. No. <laughs> I enjoy it very much. So for some people, chocolate also contains chemicals that can interfere with stomach emptying, can relax the, the sphincter at the lower end, the esophagus is more likely to get heartburn. And some and there is some caffeine, caffeine in chocolate too. So that's the other thing we have to think of is caffeine-containing foods right before bed. Uh, obviously, there are some people who are totally immune to the effects of caffeine, especially people who are drinking it all the time. But then there are other people who are very sensitive and they don't realize that if they take caffeine later in the day, it will interrupt their sleep cycle. Okay, so Dr. Shives asked earlier, what foods should we uh, eat? So I like to tell people, you know, the safest drink we can drink is water. Okay. And if you want a flavor to it, all the better. And no calories. And that is the safe. If you want to taste, chill it. And, okay, it might make you want to get up and go to the bathroom, of course, um, so, so drinking too much. So that's one, that's one thing. If you're going to take something, something lower fat, liquid, I mean, maybe in the milk realm, it could be skim milk, for example, warmed up slightly. I mean, that might be okay. But in general, we should get out of the habit, try to get out of the habit of, of thinking about food before bed. And I often think that a bigger driver to eating is not hunger, but the fear of hunger or the anticipation Mm. of hunger. So you think, oh, I'm going to bed. I've got this long period of fasting. I might get hungry in the middle of the night. (laughs) I'm going to eat first. Well, you know, that's not hunger. That's fear of hunger. Hmm. How about a banana? Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Well chewed is a good, is not a bad idea. I think if you're going to eat something, but as our nutritionist colleague has told us, you know, all those calories eaten after 10 o'clock at night, those are not going anywhere good. Yeah, but isn't a calorie just a calorie? I mean, I know we're going into nutritionist territory here, but isn't it just the same whether you eat it at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m.? Well, a lot of it depends on how your body responds to it. Um, and I think at night, remember, we're going into sleep phase. Our, our body is, kind of rebuilding itself, both physically as well as neurologically. And if you're feeding that a whole lot of food right before bed, it's not made, it's not ready for that. Um, you talk a, a little bit more about alcohol and what it does to your sleep pattern. I mean, it, it, you may not actually wake up, but does it interfere with REM sleep or, or what actually happens? What does alcohol do to the brain and how does it interfere? Well, I can't say that I'm, I'm a, a, a sleep specialist or expert, but we know that alcohol as it gets into your system it gets um, changed into acetaldehyde. Now, acetaldehyde is used for tanning leather. 
<laughs> okay, so so it's one of those things that comes off alcohol. As you di- sure you, you do digest it, you absorb it, your liver starts changing into something that's a really nasty substance, and that's starting to increase during the nighttime. Is that good for your brain, your sleeping brain? I doubt it. Um, there are... You know, we know that in our sleep cycle has got a series of, of stages that it goes through. And, you know, and a heavy dose of alcohol before you go to, go to bed could interfere with that kind of natural sequence of events. And we know that sleep is not just an hour taken is, is as good as any other hour. We know that sleep is best taken in large chunks of seven to eight or nine hours at night without any interruption. And we need to allow that whole cycle to occur to get the best benefit out of sleep. One final question, and you may have already brushed up against this, but how long before you go to sleep or before, even if you lay down, if you're just going to take a nap in the afternoon, uh, how long before you go to bed or lay down should you stop eating? What? Oh, how does that work? Ideally, it should be three hours. We know the stomach on average takes about two and a half to three hours to empty. Okay. And some people, you know, if they're on other medications or medications that could slow down stomach, it can be longer. If you take alcohol with your meal, it can be longer than that. Okay. Or if you take a high-fat meal, it can be, again, longer. So my usual advice to people is don't eat within three hours of bedtime or laying down. So the bottom line is eating before bedtime is not a good idea, and if you're going to do it, Make sure it's about three hours before you hit the big white <laughs> biscuit. biscuit. Yeah, exactly. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Joseph Murray, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, one man's personal journey from refugee to MD. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, great story to share today with our listeners. When Ahmad Mohammed's family came to Rochester, Minnesota in 1996, they were seeking refuge from the civil war in Somalia. Now, Ahmad, when they came over, was six years old, and he only knew three words in the English language. Now, by the time he'd reached fourth grade, Ahmad had he'd mastered English, really, He'd mastered it so well that he was able to graduate from Rochester Public Schools program called English for Speakers of Other Languages. And in his teen years, Muhammad would accompany his grandmother to see her doctor and serve as a translator, remembering everything that the doctor said and relaying the information about his grandmother's health to his family. That's a great story right there. <laughs> Enough well, said. Those doctor visits inspired Muhammad to pursue a career in medicine. And now here to share his story from refugee to MD is Dr. Ahmed Muhammad. Welcome to the program. It's very nice to meet you, Dr. Muhammad. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Muhammad, you didn't do it the easy way. There was, there was nothing easy about your path to becoming a physician. Tell Can you take us back to being in Somalia? Do you remember anything about that and, and why your parents decided to come to the United States? Yeah, I remember the last uh, couple of years before coming to the States. And uh, I remember moving around a lot uh, from Mogadishu to a small town about 40, 50 kilometers from uh, the capital city. And it was really a lot of uncertainty at the time. And coming to the United States was a dream, really, for my parents, who uh, maybe two decades back had the opportunity to visit here and knew that the many, many possibilities that uh, were ahead here in the States. So when we got uh, the opportunity to leave Somalia, it was there was a lot of question marks. One was the language, of course, and uh, what were the three words that you knew that were English? It was book, 
pencil and apple. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know hello or thank you or uh, no book, pencil and apple. All right, well book that gets a start. Yeah, and, and the reason why is because I use the book and a pencil every day, and um, I didn't know what an apple was, so that that was just an interesting thing to me and it stuck with me so how many your family how many in your family came your grandmother obviously was along too your parents how many siblings how many other relatives i have two siblings and my parents so all five of us first came to the states in 1996 and then four years later my grandmother and other relatives came in uh, 2000 and uh, the early 2000s so who gave you the opportunity and did you know where you were going and and how did you get here Yes, uh, one of my uncles sponsored us. And, uh, and he lives in the U.S.? He lives in the U.S. He came okay. here long before we did. And uh, then we spent some time in Ethiopia, about seven months. And uh, at the time, we were preparing to come to the United States. And um, afterward, uh, once we got that chance, uh, we flew out and landed in New York, spent a few weeks in Maryland, and then moved to Minnesota because we had another relative that was living here and told us about how great of a place it is to live. No snow in Mogadishu, I would not imagine. No. <laughs> Aside from the weather, it was a great place to be. And how old was how old were you when you came to the doctor with your grandmother to help serve as interpreter? I was maybe 14, uh, 14, 15. So you enrolled, once you got to, to Rochester, Minnesota, you enrolled in the public school system here, mm-hmm. and they had uh, English as a second language program for right. you, and you were in that for how, how long? Up until fourth grade. So I started from the first grade, and at that time I was in this newcomer program, and that's where I was learning the ABCs, and I was learning how to pronounce words and put together sentences, and then I went into the ESOL program uh, in the second grade when I had enough knowledge to at least read and write. Pencil, uh, book, and apple. Pencil, book, and (laughs) apple, exactly. And how were you able to pick up the language so quickly? Being young helped, do you think? Being young definitely helped because I know a lot of older relatives that came, and it was really hard for them to grasp the language. And so you uh, would go to the doctor uh, with your grandmother on Mm -hmm. on her visits, and is, is that what inspired you to become a physician? Yes, because um, at the time I was, uh, I had my first biology class when I was in the seventh grade, and I was interested in math initially, but then learning about living things and solving problems combined in 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 medicine is what really got me interested in it and how much my grandmother was benefiting from it. And then you uh, finished high school and went on to college. Where did, where did you go? In high school, I did the post-secondary program, post-secondary enrollment option in the 10th grade, um, well, 11th grade and 12th grade. And then you're uh, motivated. <laughs> yeah. No. What does that mean? You did so, what? In, in he went to college while he was in high school. And yes, I, I was full time student, so I didn't really spend any time in my high school during my 11th and 12th grade years. And interestingly, I, I went back to my high school, Mayo High School, uh, maybe about a month ago to speak to some students. Mm-hmm. And I went and talked with my school counselor and ch- just try to, you know, catch up. And um, she remembered that I was taking 
so many credits above <laughs> <laughs> what was what was allowed at the time, maybe a few more, just so that I could get my associate's degree while uh, just before I graduated from high school. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't really think that I was doing anything extraordinary. I just wanted to, I had set some goals for myself and I wanted to accomplish them. What type of medicine did you decide to study? What is your expertise? Which direction are you heading? Internal medicine. And I specifically want to do primary care. And um, that's also a little bit unusual in uh, in that right now a lot of people are heading towards uh, sub subspecialties of medicine or or surgery if they go that route and um, it's all about what you're interested in really and what you feel like you could contribute most to and where did you complete your undergraduate degree and then medical school I went to the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities and then I went to Michigan State University College of Human Medicine was that good it was, it was Spartans. Great. It huh? was great, yeah. <laughs> and then you, uh, was this your first choice for a residency? You it, just say yes. It was, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> hey, we should say that, uh, you said for anyone who's listening in the Rochester, Minnesota area, they'll say, Ahmed Mohammed, I should know who that is, but I don't recognize that kid's name. Right. What was your name? What was your, was it your nickname? Is that? What your name was? Yes, Shafi or Shafiri, if uh, pronounced with mm-hmm. the, the accent. And that's what your dad called you? Yes. And so a lot of your classmates and friends called you that too? A lot of my friends uh, in the Somali community and my family, and right now even residency, because sure. uh, a lot of people, uh, I tell them that's what I prefer to be called because Ahmed Mohammed is so common sure. and there's always a mix-up uh getting wrong emails, wrong things in the mail. So What's it like for your family yeah. to uh, have you become a doctor? I'm sure for your parents, that's mm-hmm. the reason why they came to this country. They're extremely proud. And I feel like they're more of the success story than I am because when my parents came to the States, you know, it was just our family and the possibilities that are available and my dad wasn't working in the in what he was trained when he came to the states. He was an agronomist back in Somalia, and uh, and they picked up jobs just so that they could provide for us and um, and live independently. And to have after 20 years one of their children become a a doctor, you know, that's a huge accomplishment for them. I think if I was a parent and my child became successful after so many years of uh, of time, uh, I'd be extremely proud as well. I mean, you, you come from a smart family. You must. Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'd <would> say <laughs> both my parents were educated, and I, I feel like I was fortunate to have uh, their support, their guidance as a child, um, because a lot of kids don't grow up in that environment, especially in the Somali community. I was just going to say, at the time that we're recording this, in the Somali community, there is a measles almost epidemic that is happening because of Mm -hmm. the lack of immunization. I would imagine this is just one of the ways that you feel like you're going to be a benefit uh, to your Somali countrymen. Yes, I would love to inform the Somali community about the benefits in vaccination and also about the latest information on diseases that are affecting our community in large. Well, congratulations on all you have done, and thanks so much for sharing your story with us. From refugee to MD, Mayo Clinic internal medicine resident, Dr. Ahmed Mohammed. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.